Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. in a time where we're, we're talking about how to interrupt cycles of violence. Among the people who were killed, there were so many innocent young people. Um, the reality on the ground is not what we see on the news. And the work that we do is maybe perhaps considered revolutionary or pushing the boundaries of what we consider possible. But maybe possible. we cannot do it on alone. We need other people to come on board the and link support. The between grassroots activists so that they are able to do this advocacy work also at international level These so their voices can, can be heard. really challenge the status quo. That's actually when the real conversation starts. Welcome to this podcast called Harnessing the Power of Nonviolence to Reorganize Power, which has been produced for the seventh edition of Geneva Peace Week and is brought to you by Nonviolent Peace Force and Peace Brigades International. Keep listening to hear about protective accompaniment in peace building, both from executive directors of nonprofit organizations and practitioners in the field who will be sharing their insights and discuss the potential of nonviolent actions to interrupt cycles of violence and create space for peace. My name is Larissa and with me today are Tiffany Easton, Executive Director of Nonviolent Peace Force, and Katya Abbey, Executive Director of Peace Brigades International Switzerland. Hello and thank you for joining us today. How are you ladies? Hi, doing great. Thanks for having Hi. us. <laughs> Hi, thank you. So, Tiffany, harnessing the power of nonviolence to reorganize power. What a title. It does remind me a little bit of a revolutionary slogan. How did this title come about and how is it relevant um, to what is happening in the world right now? I think the title really came about from what's happening in the world right now. Uh, when we think about this moment that we're all experiencing together in, in response to the pandemic, the sort of what feels like a re-energized re-emergence of the struggle around looking for justice around racial inequality um, and abuse of state power for violence. Uh, at that point, all of that is talking about how we organize as a society, how we organize and how we use power. And in the work that our respective organizations do, even before this current context, we all work on how to uh, re looking at how violence is used to as the sort of ultimate abuse of power. Um, and the work that we do is maybe perhaps considered revolutionary or pushing the boundaries of what we consider possible by using applied organized nonviolence as a way to to, to, to interrupt what is the norm, we, we default to the idea that we need to use violence, force or the threat of force to accomplish something, to accomplish change. And through the work of both Peace Brigades International and Nonviolent Peace Force, what we're trying to demonstrate is, is it, it is actually much more effective and much more sustainable to use nonviolence, civilian-led strategies of nonviolence to affect these change. This is the moment to really be talking about this and, and helping people realize this work has been going on for, for decades and it's not very well known. So maybe this is an exciting time to be talking about it. Right, so an exciting time to talk about this. Katya, can you tell us a bit more how nonviolence looks in practice? Yes, of course. Um, first of all, I would like to say something about the context in, in which we work. Um, because it's important to know that it's not going uh, to be possible to, to make this kind of nonviolent interventions, for example, in an open conflict, in a civil war, 
um, when um, there is so much violence, we can do any kind of, of intervention. Um, so in the most context we work in as PBI, there is an elite uh, in power um, and a big parts of society who do not have any access to the privileges and to um, achieve their, their human rights. And also in the context we work in, we have always a very strong civil society who is fighting uh, for their rights and who is um, promoting nonviolent ways to achieve social change. And that's exactly where we intervene. Um, we only intervene uh, with a demand from so, so, uh, civil society and um, that's what we are supporting. So we are uh, giving a protection to um, human rights defenders, to peaceful resistance groups, to communities who are working um, with peaceful means for social change. And um, our intervention is also about encouraging them to go on with their activists because they're um, all threatened people. So if they don't have the protection to do their work, they would just uh, let it uh, be because it's too dangerous. And that's why it's very important to have international support and online support to, to, uh, to help them. And what you often see is that um, the governments have adopted a lot of legislation in favor of human rights, but the problem is always on the implementation of these rights. And that's where we uh, try to strengthen the, the civil society movements. From our mandate, we always uh, intervene when there is the demand for the from the civil society, so we don't choose the conflicts where we want to intervene. That's very important, because we believe that the sustainable peace is only possible if um, it comes from inside uh, of, the, of the conflict uh, zones. We do this protective accompaniment uh, through international volunteers who are unarmed and who follow the principles of PBI like nonviolence, but also non-partisanship. And another principle which is important for us to work with is the horizontality. So inside the organization, we take all the principles by consensus. And we believe also if we come with this model uh, to the field, that it can be taken over by other organizations in the field uh, to have a very democratic ways uh, of decision making and conflict re resolution. I think, uh, Tiffany, that uh, there's many parallels to the work of Nonviolent Peace Force, so maybe you can talk us a little bit about your work. Thank you, Katya. I actually um, have been very fortunate in as much as I've been able to work with both Peace Brigades International and uh, Nonviolent Peace Force. And I really see the work we do as sister organizations. Uh, we work within the same field, Nonviolent Peace Force, or NP, uh, approaches the, the work in a slightly different uh, uh, manner in the way that we, the context that we're working in um, and the way that we apply uh, what we call unarmed civilian protection as sort of the broader toolkit. Uh, so Nonviolent Peace Force looks to reduce violence and increase the safety and security for civilians who are impacted by violent conflict. Uh, this can include and does include activists and human rights defenders, as well as regular civilians. Um, and we look at it along the conflict spectrum, uh, working in, in places where it's a fragile context, uh, there's a risk of uh, violence breaking out. Uh, in some cases, certainly not all, uh, but in some cases where there is active conflict, we've been able to utilize this approach to be protective, to reduce violence in the moment in active conflict zones, such as in South Sudan and Iraq. Uh, and then also we do a lot of work in that just past that, the apex or the height of conflict during the stabilization and sort of that long and very difficult road towards building peace. We really look at uh, approaching violence reduction our orientation is really from the community level. Uh, we have teams that are placed in communities in the various countries that we work in, uh, working in most cases together with internationals and locals working in partnership, working with local stakeholders to try and encourage local duty bearers to take up their responsibility uh, for, for protection and to those who might harm people involved, civilians involved, to make different choices.
And then the other side of the work is the real long-term work, which is digging deep, looking at uh, root causes of, of violent conflict, really trying to address behavioral change, attitudinal changes towards violence, especially in places where violence has been, violent conflict has been protracted. Um, and most importantly, really from the point of view, what we call from a values perspective, primacy of the local actor is not to bring in merely an external idea of what a nonviolent approach is, but really working with the communities, what are their cultural norms around nonviolence? Every community has it. Everybody has some version of a mediation, a dialogue, some approach to, to resolving conflict. Is it absolutely inevitable? Violence doesn't have to be. And sometimes that's really easy to, it gets, it gets a bit blurry in long-term um, conflict. So that's, that's the work that we do. Um, and as I was saying, sort of what we call unarmed civilian protection is sort of the broader toolkit. Um, and one of the tools that we use that we have in common between PBI and NP is called protective accompaniment. You know, these approaches and principles, they sound really good to me, but if I may say something that is a bit provocative, maybe, um, I think some voices um, would say that nonviolence is, in the end, not as effective as armed forces, or would even criticize um, that nonviolence actually serves to uphold the status quo and only serves the most powerful. What would you say to these voices? Yeah, it's a great question, and, it, and it's one really worth digging into. I mean, I think that there is validity for people to say, well, you're telling us to be nonviolent, but the reason we're active is we've been oppressed for so long and the oppressors have been using violence. That is a, a valid concern, and we understand and, and can empathize where that's coming from. Interestingly, if you look at the research around nonviolent, nonviolent resistance, nonviolence resistance, it is demonstrating that it is 10 times more likely to result in something like democratic transition um, rather than a violent approaches, uh, resistance movements that use nonviolence, and I mean really utilize it, are organized around nonviolence, are committed, are willing to stay committed even when there are problems that throw them off course, um, on who are extremely creative and, and engaged in the way that they approach not just protesting but really broad engagement, that we will see that it is much more likely um, uh, to, to affect the kind of long-term sustainable change. There's really interesting research coming out around that. Now that's about resistance, that's about movements. In terms of the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, our job certainly from NP's perspective as an NGO is not to, change is not our, our goal, that's the choice of the people who live in the area, that's the local people, the local activists. But in terms of, of nonviolence, really affecting a change in behavior um, around violent actors, uh, we get feedback from armed non-state actors, militia groups, we get feedback from military, police, that they actually amend the way that they behave, they change the way that they um, think about aggression and the use of force when they're in the presence of nonviolent action. Uh, and it's, it's, there's a lot of very interesting science there. So it's, it's certainly, I, I can understand where, why people feel frustrated and concerned about it, um, but it's, it's not just a, a nice idea. It, there's actually quite a, a great uh, amount of research that's coming out to show that it's a really effective way to move forward. Yes, I think from our side, um, obviously, uh, it's the only way we, we see to resolve conflicts is through nonviolence. We have the experience with the people who we accompany, who are all human rights activists, basically, that they choose this way as a conflict solution. So we, we don't see another an, another possible way. And as you say, it's, it's very hard because there are contexts where um, your neighbor has killed your brother, you know, and then you have to forgive. And it's a really long... Uh, process to forgive as an individual and to forgive as a society so it means like really also all this reconciliation work uh, you need truth and justice to to get to a sustainable peace so they are very long and hard and frustrating uh, processes um, to follow but still there um, we see the force of, of the people who fight for this and that's really 
all the time worth to to support is because they take risks every day to fight for their rights but they wouldn't stop even if they get killed so um, I think this force is what we have to to um, encourage to to go on with and um, to search always dialogue between the the conflict uh, parties and find political solutions um, uh, between these parties and that's what we try to to um, sustain these spaces where the conflict uh, the actors in conflict can come together to to discuss otherwise if um, you answer if violence is always generating more violence that's the experience we we see in all the um, armed uh, conflicts. Katya's point that she made about all the work that goes into it is also really important, especially for people who might be less familiar with this approach. Often people will hear the word peace or they'll hear the word nonviolence and it feels soft or passive. Uh, and that's that's something that um, as as a long-term practitioner, you know, I can verify uh, and really support what Katia said is that it's really hard work. There's nothing easy about this and it's extremely active. It's active, it's engaged, it's planned, it's organized uh, and it's adaptive um, and it's something that has to be done together. The other thing I would say that's really important to note around using a civilian-led nonviolent approach is that it really uh, facilitates or engenders inclusivity. And what we know about the use of force and the use of violence is it inherently is exclusive. Those who hold the weapons, those who are threatening force hold the power, not only in the moment around the threat of, of physical harm, but they hold the power to everything. They hold the economic power, they hold the, the power to the future, power of education, the decisions around the way a community will develop. Um, and that's the old way of doing business. I think, again, going back to this context we're in now, where we're really questioning how society is organized, is that's been way, the way we've been doing it generation after generation, and that status quo is just not working. It's not working for people. Uh, so adding, as Katya so clearly and correctly said, violence begets violence. So if we think about that, how about nonviolence begetting nonviolence? Great. So now, now I would like you to listen to an interview we did with Faith Kasina. She's a human rights defender from Kenya. She's accompanied by PBI. Um, the connection wasn't very good as we did the interview, but please bear with us and I hope you keep listening. Okay, uh, so I'm Faith Kasina. I'm the coordinator Kaole Community Justice Center. I'm also the co-convener of the Social Justice Center's working group. Uh, so I grew up in Kaole. Kaole is an informal settlement in Nairobi. Um, the, the thing, uh, why I became an activist, first of all, is because uh, as, I grow, as I was growing up, there were so many uh, injustices happening, but then they were normalized, you know, like uh, police killings. It was so, it, it was okay to wake up to a, a youth being killed, but then uh, the police would just uh, write down that it was uh, he was a thief and uh, he deserved to be killed, and so the the community would buy the narrative, you know. But then, so uh, when we formed, the first thing we'd ask is, are our courts not working? What? Uh, why not use the criminal justice system? You know, because. Um, why not let the courts do their job? Just arrest these young people and take them to court. You know, because again, uh, when you were, they would, they, they said they were killing these, but then among the people who were killed, there were so many innocent young people. So um, then there, were the, there was the normalization of gender-based violence, you know. People, uh, people had normalized uh, rape and defilement, you know, and domestic violence at homes. But then that that's not something that should be normalized. What what about the justice of these victims? What about the lives of these victims? How will be, how, how will their lives look like? You know, because um, with normalization comes stigma. You know, uh, we cannot we cannot even allow these victims to speak out. So what about their lives? What about their survival? Because again, there is need for psychosocial support. There is need for justice. There is need for all these things come that come with you being a victim. You know, again, you also need a space to speak out, to open up to someone, and the community was not offering that. 
We have heard now about the challenges in the informal settlements in Nairobi, and we were going now to listen to Faith how they are addressing these challenges and about the work of the social justice centers. So that's the that's actually among the few reasons why we came we came up and started Kayole Community Justice Center, which is among the uh, among the first justice centers to be formed. Uh, right now we have around uh, 16 justice centers in Nairobi with two about to be launched and uh, in other parts of Kenya. We have a few in the western region and we have a few in the coastal region. Uh, I would actually say the social justice centers has achieved a lot. First of all, uh, is actually bringing the, the urgency of dealing with these issues in the community. You know, we've normalized having these conversations because before you could not come to and to a place like Kayole and start saying, you know what, what's happening is not killing this, it's actually extrajudicial killings, you know. And, uh, but then things have changed right now. You know, we, we've, we've been able to have, to make this conversation at the national level, you know, to have these conversations at the national level, where we sit uh, with security agents and tell them, you know what, the police are killing young people in our informal settlement, you know, and want part to come to an end. The initiatives we have, uh, especially during the pandemic, uh, first, we, uh, we are documenting, there are so many violations happening right now. Uh, police abuse of power, there's a uh, lot of arrests, arbitrary arrests happening, police beating uh, people during, uh, in pretense that they are actually People have not kept the curfew hours, you know, they have not observed uh, the curfew and all that. So first of all, we, we document these issues, we, we are documenting these issues uh, and reporting them and referring them to organizations that could actually help us to find justice for these victims and survivors. Uh, another thing we're doing, um, we are also uh, started initiatives of helping the most vulnerable members of the community because uh, COVID-19 came with lots of issues, people losing their jobs, you know. Other people are just being drawn out of houses because they cannot meet their needs, they cannot pay their rent, you know. So uh, we've started uh, initiatives where we, where we support uh, the most vulnerable members of the community, be it with our foodstuffs or anything that we can just afford. In Kayola, we've supported around uh, 600 members of the community with foodstuffs. Uh, during this time because we understand most members cannot even afford food, afford three meals a day, you know. So um, those are just a few initiatives that the, that the Social Justice Center's working group are, is doing, documenting these violations and reporting them for, so that uh, the victims can get justice. Another thing um, is trying to see how the most vulnerable members of the community can get help through this, uh, during these hard times. We have now heard about the work of the social justice centers and now we would like to listen to Faith to know about uh, the international support they receive and how it's so important for them. First of all, uh, PBI has supported the human rights defenders in Kenya, especially the social justice centers. Uh, during this time, uh, they have they have really done the best to make sure that, uh, first of all, um, they build our capacity to be able to document and to, to serve our communities better. You know, you can't serve your community if you don't have the knowledge to do that. You know, you don't have to document and you're putting your life at risk. So they have really um, tried the best to make sure that the capacity builds uh, HRDs to be able to carry their work uh, well and also using uh, safe platforms, you know. And also, um, there are just some uh, cases that um, PBI, uh, PBI this year, uh, in February 20th, uh, brought uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on uh, extrajudicial killings. And she, she's, she's following on some cases. So uh, that's, that's the kind of support uh, that we've gotten with uh, PBI. Being able to uh, take up cases that um, 
at the international level and ask questions, you know, like uh, extrajudicial killings and forced disappearances. We have cases of, an, uh, of someone who disappeared in April, you know, April 24th. Till date, they've never been found. There were three of them, a driver, um, the Michael Nja was part of a justice center in Kia Michael. He disappeared together with his cousin and the driver. They've never been found till date. There are no answers to the questions that you raised. There are no answers to the family. So um, just helping us uh, raise our voice, uh, our voice to that level where it's not us asking these questions alone. Also, the international community is asking these questions and needs answers so that our government can respond faster to our cases. And also, um, it also cautions us to just show that we, we are not doing this alone, you know. Uh, we are actually in partnership with other people who are also watching what the government is doing. Because um, recently it has been so hard for us to come, to come out to the streets and uh, demonstrate about our issues, about our rights. Because again, um, the government has really um, made sure that our rights to protest uh, has really curtailed our rights protest so uh, when you go to the street to get arrested and all that but then uh, the government knowing that the international community is watching other people are watching it's so hard it, for them to actually um arrest us beat us in the streets because uh, recently they have been uh, they've really dealt with human rights defenders uh, in a rough way beating them arresting them you know just for because uh of going out uh, to demonstrate in the streets, uh, to peacefully demonstrate on the streets. So again, um, it would be better if um, if uh, the international community would come in and also support our 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 work, the work that you do. We carry out research. We do. Uh, we carry advocacy on GBV, a right to life and dignity. But then you know we cannot do it all alone. We need other to come on board and support the work that you do, support the work of the social justice centers, and also support the social justice centers to on um, to stand on their feet, you know, to be able to advocate for these issues better in their community and strongly. We had a, um, a volunteer who was working in Kenya, Johan, and uh, I remember when he told us um, that it was really impressive for him to, to see the multiplication of all these social justice centers because they started in uh, Matare and then it was growing and growing. Now you have like about 24 of these centers uh, in the whole uh, uh, city of Nairobi. And he said it was such a fast growing social movement which impressed him so much and I felt he was observing history with a big age really. So that's really history who is, which is uh, being like <laughs> done um, through this growing uh, movement. And I think it's very important that uh, networks are created uh, among different movements because so their voices become much stronger and then they can raise awareness um, within Nairobi, within the country, but also outside the country. So that's one part of PBI's work to enforce the, um, the international human rights pressure from this uh, level to the, the governments, uh, to the country governments. Right now in Kenya, we don't have um, any volunteers who do physical accompaniment to human rights defenders. So our work is really focused on advocacy work, on capacity building, on uh, network, um, network building and um, of man on maintaining the civil space for the social, social justice centers, sorry. But a physical accompaniment uh, is uh, in many of our projects, uh, uh, for instance, in Latin America, like the core of, of our work. And it's very important, for instance, um, if uh, international volunteers go to a police station with human rights activists, they get a completely other treatment. We saw this also in Kenya when they went alone to the police station. Often they were also put in jail because of denouncing some human rights violations. And if there are internationals with them, it's a 
um, a big change, a big support. This is especially the case in very remote areas, in uh, rural areas where there is no, nobody like watching or seeing when they are attacked or violence is happening. Um, and currently we see, for instance, in Colombia that violence is increasing a lot uh, in the context uh, of the pandemic. We see there are many massacres going on in rural areas. And um, this is also due to the fact that, that people can't uh, move uh, freely now with the restrictions. Um, of governments and uh, it's very important to to keep watching and observing the human rights situation right now in this crisis time maybe you want to see something more on this tiffany yeah i think this is i mean the points around what we see here with this kind of work is about network building bringing people together from different parts of the world and even within within one country is really common uh, across the work that both of our organizations do and it's really about exclusion and isolation are dangerous places to be when when there's an abuse of power when there's violence happening it happens in those excluded and and isolated spaces and this type of work and so when we talk about sort of reorganizing society and and addressing power imbalances is really about putting light on those dark places um and uh Firstly, the most important work that can be done is by the people who are most affected by what's happening. So this example, I think, is so great to hear about these social justice centers rather than foreigners coming in and trying to help people there and saying, this is what you need. It's people who live in those communities saying, this is what we need. We want to be able to to, to, to improve our own situations uh, in a place that's, that's really dangerous to say those words. And then the work that PBI is doing with them is really to help encourage, open up that space, make connections, so that that's a, a space of light, not a space of darkness, and make it safer to allow that, that kind of sustainable change to really happen. Um, and so that's really helpful. I think in this time of COVID, it's another time that we, we talked about earlier, um, is that because there are fewer of us traveling, there's fewer of us being present, that it's harder and harder uh, to be, um, uh, be physically present. Um, so I was really interested to hear how uh, organized and well this work is going on, sort of at a distance kind of uh, accompaniment. You've, that's a great adaptation um, that we might need to, to, to continue to build on for the coming months at least. Uh, so that was great. So we've heard uh, in the examples and some of the stuff that we've talked about, we've re referenced um, international presence. Uh, and I just want to clarify, one of the most important parts is when we say international presence, it doesn't mean just Western presence. Uh, when this work first started, we would call it passport protection. So those of us who come from Western countries or the global North, um, it was, it was uh, assessed that uh, having somebody with that passport present um, in an area that is affected by violent conflict somehow creates more safety because the value of the life of somebody with a Western passport is higher. Um, and over time, and as the global context, the Cold War ended, the global context evolved, what we know is it's much more nuanced than that, and that's we can all support and help each other. So for example, in our, in our program in South Sudan, we have around 50 expat staff there, and only three or four of them are from Western countries right now. The, the thing that really works is it's about bearing witness. So it's about having somebody who's an outsider from the immediate area, uh, who is bearing witness, who is a physical manifestation or a representation of the concerns of outsiders. I spoke earlier about inclusion um, and isolation. So it's, again, it's bringing light to the area that somebody who's from outside of that area is aware of what's going on, is concerned about the safety and security and well-being, about the community, the civilians, the organization, the activist, and is therefore bearing witness, and through that is affecting behavioral changes from the people who were involved in, in possibly um, implicating uh, violence. It's a very uh, important uh, um, comment you, you make on this international presence, because at PBI we have also seen there is a, a big shift from like these Western volunteers uh, going to the project countries to volunteers from other from other parts of, of the world. At PBI, we still have the 
the rule that you can't um, do the accompaniment in your country if you have the nationality of Colombia you can't be an observer in Colombia and that has to do with the international human rights pressure we want to do <laughs> um, on the on the government but still what we observe is that we have many many volunteers from other uh, Latin American countries um, doing volunteership so for example Mexicans in Colombia or um, Colombians in Guatemala and there is a really a shift and also much more volunteers from uh, Eastern um, Europe. Um, so I think this is very important and uh, as to Latin America, to have volunteers from Latin America, it brings completely another vision because they know very well the context um, on, on their, um, in this region, they know the language and it makes a good um, mixture then of, of international teams. On, on the ground, so I think it's an important point. Uh, now we have an opportunity to hear another voice uh, from the field, a colleague from the Nonviolent Peace Force uh, program in South Sudan, Moral. All right. So my name is Maral Kaye. I work for Nonviolent Peace Force South Sudan and I'm coordinating the civic engagement project. The way MP operates is we, are, um, we, we have different missions throughout the world. And uh, for instance, I work in South Sudan. And in South Sudan, we are geographically spread throughout the whole country. And we have um, field sites that are in the very remote areas, as well as field sites in the urbanized areas. And those teams that are on the ground, they live and breathe with the communities. So as they live with the communities, they try to understand what are the main risks the communities are facing. And um, through being present, they can understand better what are the hotspots, which places are not safe for individuals and civilians to, to move. Um, and through identifying those hotspots, they can also therefore um, sort of apply what MP is good at, which is that we believe that international presence deters violence. So sort of the practical um, uh, application of that is that we don't just watch and stare people being at risk why they cannot get to a certain place and we will not look away and say well don't take that road because that road is not safe we will say okay are there ways where we can through our presence move with you to ensure that you can actually get to location B because even if places are not safe we've seen within the communities if women need to go out to get wood or if women need to go to water holes, they will still go regardless of what sort of risk they will face as they need to go to these roads that have incredibly horrible risks um, for them to take. So the idea is that NP teams then sort of strategically and visibly move with these individual and groups of civilians to ensure that they can at least get to from point A to point B safely. And this is what I believe really makes NP unique is in a, in a time where we're, we're talking about how to interrupt cycles of violence, NP is really choosing a, a groundbreaking approach. Um, NP as a whole um, looks at um, cycles of violence throughout the whole world in a different way um, in the sense that um, we believe that you will always have conflicts, but um, cycles of conflicts can be um, interrupted and you can apply non-violent tools and, and approaches to, to bring people together rather than it escalating into violence. Um, and one way for us, one approach is this protective accompaniment, which is unique, which is a way to sort of embody and materialize the fact that we believe international presence actually changes the reality on the ground. He looks for ways to practically make sure that we are strategically putting ourselves in positions and places that are not necessarily the safest places, but um, through our presence, we can create more safety and security by supporting the community and by really sort of um, understanding the needs because every situation, every individual, every group of civilians will may 
need a different sort of approach. So protective accompaniment is never a one tool fits all. It's not one specific method that we use everywhere and can be used everywhere. In every community, in every um, specific field site, we through the communities really get informed and understand what it is the communities need and then sort of tailor based on that what our protective presence should be. Okay, let me give a few examples. I'll start with the example closest to my project, which is that sometimes we're dealing with um, LGBTI human rights defenders that um, are, um, have been tested HIV positive, but are very, very worried because of stigma to actually move to specific clinics. So we know for a fact that there are certain clinics that provide support. So for us to make sure in very sensitive communities that those individuals can get to spaces discreetly, we just step in. We, under, we sort of make sure that we are at a trust level where um, we, those that we are supporting feel free enough to, to share this information with us in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then the second step is to, to make sure that we know on the ground who would be um, willing to provide services uh, that they need. And then the third step is the actual planning where you make a security plan where you discuss from pickup to drop off to different routes and different movement where that person will be picked up and returned back home. Um, and I think that sort of is like a, is a very practical example of, of a very uh, sensitive um, as issue that we very practically can, can support in and move with someone to a specific place to get a service and then ensure they get home safely. Um, especially with, with these specific individuals, we knew, um, for instance, that as they were trying to get to a clinic previously, one of them had been attacked and stabbed. So it's, it's, it, it, it's very messy reality. Um, it's very harsh, but it's, it gets, it sort of covers all that we can do. This really gives us a better impression, better idea of what uh, this accompaniment looks like. But I'm sure many listeners would wonder, is it dangerous? I think for everyone who has ever worked in a place that's sort of labeled as a conflict zone or war zone, um, they would testify that within these countries, there's always a great space for humanitarians to operate. Um, the reality on the ground is not what we see on the news. By living with communities, we understand much better what the security needs are. We, from civilian to civilian, can ensure that actually we look for opportunities to build peace together and that um, there's dialogue. There's always, um, in, in even the harshest places, there's always opportunities and chances to ensure that there's some level of dialogue. It, it may not look like that from the outside, but I think in the worst cases, we still see that there's so many people inside countries trying to build peace, trying to set up peace talks. And, and I think NP really sort of builds through that by being present, by living with those communities. And if your work is to work within the security era, for definition, you've accepted some level of danger um, because you're not working in the safest areas. So you know this, but I think what we do is we don't take any unnecessary risks, but we also just make use of the fact that having international presence adds so much more security for them to be able to move. I think it's so easy to sort of get cynical and say, you know, um, you know, jump in the middle to 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 protect a civilian. I think if if you are looking at it that way, you don't know how our fields operate in the field, because we, per definition, work with the primacy of local actors, which means that we respect and understand the community needs, and we will never jump in in a place where it's not safe and secure or or where we should not be. Um, so it's, it's through a good understanding and a strategic use of this method that we uh, use the benefits of being an outsider for the benefit of those that are living in the harshest places. Where we see um, NP sort of add to the more structural investment in bringing peace to, to, to specific places is basically um, we set a specific standard and, and these emergency types of, of methods we use are really 
not just the way to make sure a person gets from location A to B. It's also just the communication with those watching and those actually creating the risks of to say, hey, um, we are present not just to watch and leave when things are you know, messy. We're here and moving with communities. We are here and watching what you're doing. If you are trying to attack people that are, are civilians, then you need to answer for that. And we are going to be part of, of any sort of um, um, dynamic here on the ground to ensure that we together create a more sort of ground to speak, to create more dialogue, to create more understanding, to look for opportunities to build allies while we're at the same time, you know, doing the, the rough work, which is, you know, sometimes you need to move with people from point A to B because it's not that people like walking these routes that are dangerous. They, they, they go down to, you know, uh, basic needs. If you need water, if you need wood, or if you need to get to a hospital, you know, it's not enough to, to make sure you put a clinic somewhere in the middle of the bush, you know, in a remote area. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure people can actually access it. And, and I think that's the difference between MP and some of the bigger organizations. You know, if, if the bigger organizations are ensuring that certain facilities are there, MP is the one working as hard as possible to making sure to understand where the communities can reach it. And I think that's a very um, rightful critique that's, that we hear also back from communities, that sometimes, you know, the, the projects implemented, the players on the ground, are not really effectively understanding what the needs are of the communities. And I think NP is really stepping into that gap. We then asked Maral what she would answer to those who argue that nonviolence is not safe and has no real impact in a context of violent conflict. Let's hear her response. I mean, I would tell to all those people, like, have you actually stepped into a country where you need to respond to violence? Because per definition, if you walked in as a military or militarized or part of a military convoy, those communities that have just been targeted will have absolutely zero trust to speak with you, to, to build a relation with you, to explain to you what their needs and interests are. And I think that's really the, the problem or the general issue that we see is that there's such a mismatch between the understanding of what security is and the reality and the needs of the communities on the ground it's so easy to say, you know, it's not safe for internationals to be present, militarized and be effective and useful. Whereas I would turn it around. I would say, well, what I see is actually when you're not wearing weapons, when you're actually walking around in, from civilian to civilian, uh, part of these communities, that's actually when the real conversation starts. Great. Well, I think that after we've, we've had these conversations and heard some examples of some of the field work, uh, just sort of bringing us back to where we started at the top of this conversation about how these type of approaches can really challenge the status quo um, and really encourage us and challenge us to look at different ways to address the way we use power. Again, violence is like the ultimate misuse of power uh, and, it's a, and violence is used to, to entrench the status quo, to in, entrench patterns of discrimination, patterns of exclusion we've seen generation over generation, decades upon decade that we're really trying to challenge now. Uh, and what we've can seen, what we have heard and seen from our, our colleagues in the field is that, well, there is no perfect solution. These are very complex problems, very layered problems. There's no singular solution to any of these problems. This approach has a real practical value for interrupting um, these cycles of violence, creating a bit of space around people, partly to allow them to just be able to breathe and live their normal lives, and then wherever possible to, to create conditions where it is possible uh, to find sustainable solutions. I think it's really easy uh, to be paralyzed by the complexities of situations. For those of us, uh, you know, watching wars, conflicts, uh, um, all kinds of attacks happening on the news, listening to it on the radio, it seems impossible. 
it seems impossible that something can fix that and we must send in an army, we must send in the armed peacekeepers, we must send in a regional force. That's clearly the only answer. Um, but what we know from working on the ground in these situations is that there are endless opportunities. You know, we call them opportunities for interventions or, or spaces to, to engage, openings to address different ways that we we engage the way that we talk and the way that we act in and around how we address our differences how we address conflict without the use of violence yes i think it's very important not to get paralyzed by these uh, situations because as you said we intervene in very complex violent conflicts uh, which are lasting for uh, years and years uh, um, and uh, there it's very important um, to give this opportunity to the local movements to go on with their fight and not to stop. And that's where we intervene to, to give this support, this space is needed. And this work is also much about uh, solidarity with the, with the people who are fighting for social change and for human Right, because when they feel this, this support also from outside, it's, um, it's also very uh, emotional support. It's not only about, okay, um, we try to give you protection, security uh, when you are making the, um, when you are going from A to B, as we heard before. It's also a very strong emo emotional uh, support for, for people who are like threatened all days or threatened to, to get killed so this side is also very important and the volunteers who are coming back to their countries they are going to raise awareness from here and uh, that's going to strengthen our networks all over the world it's creating this uh, big international community um, who is supporting uh, human rights um, all over the the places thank you katia and tiffany and also faith casina and Maral kaye for your insights. Now, for all of us who have been inspired by these stories and would like to know more, what can we do? So if you would like to have more information from our organizations, I invite you to visit our uh, websites and we are also present on social media. And there you can also have more information about how to get involved, for example, as a volunteer or to make a, a donation. So please visit us and, and Keep in touch. Thank you, Tiffany and Katya. This was Harnessing the Power of Nonviolence to Reorganize Power, a podcast brought to you by Nonviolent Peace Force and Peace Brigades International as part of Geneva Peace Week. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or thoughts on what you just heard, please don't hesitate to get in touch. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can share it with friends and family on your social media. And don't forget to tag NP and PBI. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.